Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me, and thanks for your patience on this late start. Hope your weekend is going well. I suppose I should say a few words about what's going on in Gaza, although that wasn't the set topic for tonight. But uh, just as we're speaking, a ceasefire deal has reportedly gone into effect between Israel and Islamic Jihad, which hopefully will put uh, an end to Israel's assault. 43 Gazans have been killed. And this is a periodic Israeli attack. This happens pretty much every year now. Uh, this is the deadliest such Israeli attack in more than a year. Uh, but this is part of the course where Israel bombs a open-air prison, primarily kills civilians, kills children, uh, attacking an, an impoverished strip of land that it's blockaded for well over a decade, uh, on land that it's occupied illegally since 1967. And even though Israel nominally withdrew in the mid-aughts, it still retains complete control over the Gaza Strip. So it's still fair to call it occupied territory. And, you know, what to say about it? I mean, it's, you know, at this point now, no one, I think, uh, it's not controversial anymore to say in U.S. public life that Israel is an occupying power. It's an apartheid state. Every major human rights organization agrees with that now. Uh, including Beth Salem, the leading Israeli human rights organization, that this is a an apartheid state based on Jewish supremacy, um, occupying and dispossessing the lands of indigenous people. The majority of civilians in Gaza are refugees. They come from families that were actually displaced from their homes originally in 1948, uh, when Israel was founded, and in uh, in events since. So that's who Israel is attacking, and. Connecting this to Ukraine, there was an interesting statement today from uh, Ukraine's ambassador to Israel, who expressed what he called his, quote, great sympathy with the Israeli public. He said, terrorism and malicious attacks against civilians have become daily routine for Israelis and Ukrainians. He didn't even make any mention of Palestinians. And what I found interesting about this is I think this speaks to, you know, who Ukraine identifies with. And so it's no surprise that Ukraine would identify with another client or asset of the U.S., which is Israel. Israel is a U.S. client state. It exists uh, based on U.S. military support. Uh, and by exists, I mean it, it, it exists as an occupying power based on U.S. military and diplomatic support. And similarly, Ukraine has subordinated itself to Ukraine power, so it, to U.S. power. So it's no surprise to me that Ukraine would completely identify with Israel in this and not even mention Palestinians. Cause I think Ukraine sees itself as just another U S asset as well. So naturally we'll feel sympathetic toward Israel. And I hope especially leftists who have been pushing this idea that, you know, supporting Ukraine means supporting a resistance to imperialism. I hope they realize uh, who they're actually supporting here because, um, there are people who support Palestinian rights who also have been, I think, duped by a lot of propaganda around Ukraine into believing that the Ukrainian resistance and the Palestinian resistance are very similar. Uh, they're quite the opposite. Palestinians have been occupied for decades. When there have been peace accords reached, such as the Oslo Peace Accords, Israel has used those peace accords to basically deepen the occupation and continue it through other means, including using the Palestinian Authority as a proxy force. Ukraine, similarly, 
there were peace accords in 2015 uh, to end the war in the Donbass that uh, is a major factor in this current war, this current Russian invasion. The Ukraine used those peace accords to basically prepare for war, uh, as Poroshenko, the former Ukrainian president, recently admitted. And I played that clip in a recent episode of this show. So Israel and Ukraine are much more alike than I think Ukraine and the Palestinians are. And I think many people have been deluded into uh, believing the opposite. And so this statement I thought was very telling. In terms of how things are going in the Ukraine proxy war, well, it's more of the same. And recently, Lindsey Graham, the uh, leading, one of the leading hawks on Capitol Hill, and uh, a major supporter of every single U.S. regime change operation abroad, going back many years. He recently uh, laid out his agenda uh, pretty clearly. He said that just as you know, people like myself have been saying and other critics of the Ukraine proxy war, he said that as long as we arm Ukraine, as long as we arm Ukraine, they will fight to the last person. Um, and people like Matt Duss, who is the uh, foreign policy advisor for Bernie Sanders, he said in response to leftists making that argument that that's disingenuous, that it denies Ukrainians of their own agency and sees them as merely instruments of U.S. power. Well, um, it can't really be disingenuous when it's the official policy of the U.S. government, as uh, Lindsey Graham made clear. So let's listen to what Lindsey Graham had to say. Four months into this thing, I like the structural path we're on here. As long as we have Ukraine with the weapons they need and the economic support, they will fight to the last person. So, Secretary Blinken, I didn't think there was an issue under the sun that would get 100 votes. We found it. Russia's a state sponsor of terrorism. So, that's an amazing statement. First of all, he says, four months into this thing, I like the structural path we're, we're on here. Okay. That's what he says. Imagine saying four months into this disastrous war that has killed, you know, tens of thousands in Ukraine, uh, that is causing or fueling a global food and fuel crisis that is forcing Europe to ration energy that is raising tensions between the world's two top nuclear powers. For someone to say four months in, I like the path we're on here. And then he makes plain what that path is. He says, as long as we continue to arm Ukraine, they will fight to the last person. So Lindsey Graham is making plain exactly what proxy war critics have been warning about for a long time. He just thinks it's a good thing. He thinks it's a good thing to fund, fuel a proxy war so that its participants will fight to the last person. So we'll basically destroy themselves. So he's happy about that. And he was especially happy because, as he says at the end of that clip, uh, that was after the Senate had voted unanimously to declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. And although that that vote isn't binding, it does raise uh, momentum to get Bi- to get Joe Biden, which is the real target of this vote, to make that declaration. And if Biden were to make that declaration and put Russia on the state sponsor of terrorism list, that would essentially make negotiations with Russia impossible. You can't negotiate really with a country you've declared to be a state sponsor of terrorism. The other states include. Uh, North Korea, Cuba, Syria, Iran, and look where we are now in terms of um, negotiations with them. Biden, by the way, is refusing to walk back 
Trump's decision to put Iran on that list, which makes negotiations on restoring the Iran nuclear deal uh, even more difficult. And Biden so far isn't budging on that. So, so, so that's Lindsey Graham, and uh, so that's what the U.S. is doing. It's making it harder to neg- making it harder to negotiate on top of the Biden administration's refusal to negotiate on the issue of Ukraine to begin with. It's also sending uh, more weapons. There's more weapons to be announced tomorrow, I believe. That's uh, Monday, if you're listening to this later. And that's what that's where, where we are. And in terms of congressional opposition, recently House Democrats added a measure to uh, a recent bill that passed. I think it was the NDA. It was the Pentagon bill, perhaps. Anyway, it's a measure that passed that basically calls for more oversight of U.S. weaponry going to Ukraine and a written evaluation of whether or not the dangers of nuclear war are increasing. So basically, the Democrat, the the the, the most uh, the most dissent we can get from Democrats right now is to get them to call for some monitoring of the dangers that they're voting for. That's essentially what their policy is. Yes, we're going to vote to increase nuclear tensions. We're going to vote to fuel proxy war, but we're going to have some monitoring of it. It's going to be documented in some way. That's the best we can hope for right now from the Democrats. And um, Ro Khanna recently was quoted saying that, like, what's the plan on the diplomatic front? Because this proxy war is, in Ro Khanna's words, wreaking havoc on the U.S. and the global economy. So despite acknowledging that this proxy war is wreaking havoc, Ro Khanna has not demanded anything beyond asking that question once in the Washington Post. And beyond that, beyond asking rhetorically, what's the plan? There's no effort to actually ask that question directly to the Biden administration and try to get a plan into place. So that's where, that's where things are at. And so meanwhile, though, because this is going on for so long, it's getting harder to contain the facts, which is what this propaganda, which is what this proxy war survived on is incredible narrative obedience to the pro-war propaganda, which includes not allowing reporting of the countervailing facts. So for example, leading up to the war and afterwards, you couldn't report on the eight years of war that preceded Russia's invasion, which was the war in the Donbass that killed 14,000 people and which Ukraine refused to stop, which they could have done had they chosen to implement the Minsk Accords. Instead, they chose to, as Poroshenko, the former president, admitted to prepare for war, and that, that's what they got. Um, you couldn't talk about the coup in 2014. You still can't. It's really impossible to find any mention of the U.S. backed coup in Ukraine 2014. So you can't talk about that context, but you also can't talk about, uh, you know, crimes on the Ukrainian side. You can definitely talk about war crimes committed by Russia. That's, that's obviously, that, that's everywhere. But in terms of war crimes on the Ukrainian side, there's sort of been a, um, there's sort of been a, uh, a whiteout on that where you just can't really discuss it. And that includes a Ukraine strategy of, of placing its military forces and equipment inside residential areas. Even in areas where the residents say, you know, we don't want you here because you're going to open us up to attack. Ukraine has put itself uh, in those positions across the country. And that's been reported on from the start in places like the Washington Post. But Amnesty International recently did a report also documenting this fact, uh, saying that Ukrainian forces have put civilians in harm's way by establishing bases and operating weapon systems in populated residential areas. And because Amnesty said this, there's been this huge freak out where people are calling for Amnesty uh, to be defunded, for people to stop donating. People are calling for people at Amnesty to be fired, including people who had nothing to do with the report. 
And that speaks to the intolerance that exists in U.S. media for countervailing facts, uh, facts that challenge the dominant narrative. But again, they haven't been hidden. So, for example, the Washington Post, this is March 28th, so uh, three months ago, the Washington Post writing uh, about, quote, what it calls Ukraine's strategy of placing heavy military equipment and other fortifications in civilian zones. And there was a whole article about it. And the article basically said that it's going to be difficult to charge Russia with war crimes because Ukraine is putting its military in civilian zones. And so you can't accuse Russia of war crimes in cases where Russia is targeting military sites, even if they're in civilian zones. And the responsibility there, according to international law, lies on Ukraine for placing its forces there. That's how international law works. You, Amnesty goes out of its way to say it's not excusing Russian war crimes, and it says Russia has committed many war crimes. But it's also not shying away from just documenting this basic fact. But because it did that, it's led to this huge amount of outrage. And if you read the way Western media covers it, usually if it's Amnesty accusing an official enemy state like Russia, you know, U.S. media will just basically repeat the claim because it must be true. But in this case now, Amnesty is under much more scrutiny because it dared you know, deviate somewhat from the establishment narrative. Another uh, piece of, um, another uh, outlet to deviate from the narrative is CBS News. They did a documentary about how uh, the U.S. is not tracking the billions of dollars in weapons that it's pumping into Ukraine. Uh, And this has been obvious also from the start. Uh, Western officials have warned that once, once U.S. weapons cross the border from Poland into Ukraine, they can't track them. So CBS News did a documentary about this, just pointing this out. And they also have been under attack. Let's listen to a clip of that. Do we have any sense as to where they're going? We don't know. Uh, there is really no information as to where they're going uh, at all. What is more worrying is that at least some of the countries that are sending weapons do not seem to think that it is their responsibility to put in place a very robust oversight mechanism to ensure that they know how they're being used today, but also how they might and will be used tomorrow. Is it appropriate for us to be asking these questions in in, in a state of emergency? You have a country that has been invaded by a larger neighboring force, whatever it takes to survive seems to be the name of the game. It's not just that it is appropriate to ask this question. It is absolutely necessary to ask this question because if we look back, we have so many different examples in Afghanistan and Libya, Iraq, and the situations where weapons that are meant for one purpose at a particular time end up going elsewhere, being used for other purposes. When ISIS took over Mosul in 2014, they you know, came into possession of large amounts of new, sophisticated weapons that U.S. forces had left for the Iraqi forces. But, you know, Iraqi forces lost control of the city, ran away, and, and all that fell into the hands uh, of ISIS. During the deb- so that uh, speaker there, she was from Amnesty International, so Amnesty is facing heat for that as well. But, yeah, she's totally right. And, in fact, I think she makes a too generous case because when she talks about how these weapons getting into the wrong hands, that's an unintended consequence. In the case of Libya and Syria, the U.S. knew exactly who it was arming. It was arming jihadi-dominated insurgencies. It just didn't care because those insurgencies were going to topple governments that the U.S. wanted to ouster and to, to overthrow. And in Libya, the impact was not just to enable a jihadi insurgency, but also to help, after they won, uh, 
Qaddafi's st- uh, weapon stockpile was looted, and that spread weapons around Africa, including to neighboring Mali, which radically escalated violence there. And as we know, and I wrote about not too long ago in a long article, the U.S. then used the weapons taken from Qaddafi from Libya to ship them over to Syria, where they were handed over to an insurgency dom- that they knew was dominated by al-Qaeda. And now, you know, there are parallels to what's happening in Ukraine with, you know, extremist forces coming from around the world. In this case, they're not jihadis, they're Nazis and and members of the far right, and they're getting weapons and their allies are getting weapons and those weapons are being sold on the black market and war profiteers are doing well and everybody else has to pay the price. So that's where we're at with that. Um, That's a good enough rant, I think. I will take some calls now because we have a good enough cue. All right. Stefan, you're up first. Um, so can you hear me? Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. I think we had talked back in, uh, March about some of the stuff that was going on in Ukraine. I had talked to some people I knew, uh, who were kind of on the ground there and I actually kind of had a falling out with them over, uh, you know, some of the normalization of, of, of stuff that, that has been going on since, uh, so I wasn't very happy about that, but I, I, I kind of wanted to refocus on the intersection here you were talking about between news cycles and the motives for that. And on the other plane, the motives for organizations like Amnesty International, Amnesty International with uh, credibility and kind of international law. So in my mind, um, their charter runs directly contrary or maybe just incidentally as an impediment to U.S. intelligence and kind of our propaganda so by charter, you know, they're trying to focus on things like war crimes and international law, whereas um, we have this pretty massive um, uh, propaganda arm of the U.S. media that's been around for quite a long time as well. And I see these two, two kind of clash periodically. And so I, I think the thing you had said back in March was, you know, time will bear out the truth of, you know, war crimes and things like that in Ukraine. Um, and I, I just find this also very interesting because, you know, Amnesty International kind of works as a bulwark against some of the more malicious stuff I think I see that comes out of U.S. propaganda and intelligence. And so I, I'm curious if they're going to start firing people or if, you know, institutionally they're going to kind of hold true to their charter and, and, and see. What's your sense of that? Amnesty International keeps coming up as kind of a organization that has a lot of difficulty kind of getting things off the ground and, you know, challenging U.S. narratives. So I'm, I'm kind of curious of your sense, like historically, how how you think they're going to they're going to fare with this kind of pressure. Well, interestingly, so thank you to people who posted the article that I missed where Amnesty actually apologized today uh, for what they called the distress caused by the report. But they stood by the findings. And there's an amazing line in here where they say, they say, while we fully stand by our findings, we regret the pain caused. It's pretty amazing. So we fully stand by our findings, but we're sorry for people who are upset that we're exposing pro-war propaganda. That's the first time I've ever seen Amnesty have to apologize for facts, or anybody really apologize for facts. Um, if you were to put out a report documenting war crimes by Russia, do you think Amnesty would have to put out a, an apology saying, 
we stand by our findings, but we regret no. the pain caused to. No, of course, of course not. not. You know? yeah. So that speaks, you know, that speaks to the political context that they operate under and the pressures that they're under. And I mean, if I, I think it's ridiculous to apologize for facts. Either you stand by your facts or you don't. So uh, if you get them wrong, then you apologize. But if you stand by them, there's no need to apologize for them. And and here's a theory but, I think that I I may disagree with you, which is interesting. So like like we agree on all of that, um, but. You, there's a there's a place for credibility and there's a place for polemic and so I, I think in any sort of environment rhetorically where you're interacting with good faith faith uh i guess interlocutors and um people who you know value credibility absolutely makes sense you know there's a batting average your uh i guess terms will stand the test of time right and if you're right about an issue like Iraq or Afghanistan or Ukraine, then, of course, your credibility will, you know, kind of <laughs> align the conversation with credible actors. But in a predominantly pr- uh, propaganda system, you're going to get thrown under the bus either way. And so what, at what point does it make more sense to, I guess, take it to the other logical polar extreme? Uh, yeah, well, um, Sure. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know about that. What I do know is that amnesty is certainly not above political pressure. And I had a personal experience with this when a few months ago, I got a tip from someone saying that, that amnesty was no longer calling Alexei Navalny a prisoner of conscience because of all the bigoted statements he had made in the past about Muslims and immigrants. And that he hadn't, uh, he hadn't apologized for and that he actually had stood by. So I wrote Amnesty to see, just to confirm whether that, that's true. And I got a response saying, yeah, we're not calling him a prisoner of conscience anymore because of his, you know, bigoted views that he won't recant. And so I just wrote a, I didn't even, I didn't even write an article about it. I just wrote a tweet saying, you know, hey, guess what? Amnesty says that it no longer considers Navalny a prisoner of conscience. And I included a screenshot of the response I had gotten. And that set off this whole thing where, you know, there were articles being written that like somehow, um, first of all, like they were falsely claiming that I was working for RT, which I never have. Uh, I've never worked for any Russian state media. So there was like, but because RT, I think reported what my tweet early on, there was some like dumb thing where they were saying that like RT had gotten advanced word about amnesty and maybe like they had, co- they had, co- they had colluded with amnesty on it, which is, is also stupid. Anyway, amnesty ended up apologizing and actually, uh, Going backtracking and saying yes, we actually now do consider Navalny a prisoner of conscience, and that uh, was totally a result of all the pressure that they came under. Which you know there was like a there was some pieces in the British media and elsewhere and in the, in the New Yorker, and that was enough to get Amnesty to back down on that. So and now I don't really personally that doesn't really bother me whether they consider Navalny a prisoner of conscience or not. I think it was kind of hypocritical that if they had these standards or if you had espoused bigoted views then you can't be a deemed a prisoner of conscience, but whatever. I, you know, that's, that's their business. What I did think was interesting though, is just how they easily, they caved. Uh, but, uh, that's, that's what happens when you operate in Western culture. You're not going to, it's very seldom you're going to be like Julian Assange and caged and tortured. The real ways to get you are just to call you names and try to stigmatize you. And that often works. It often works very well. Yeah. It, it just, I, I find it interesting with an organization like Amnesty because they are straddling both uh, paradigms, right? They're yeah. both accountable to their readers or their donators or what have you, but then they're also kind of 
accountable for their credibility in international law. And so, uh, it, so it seems like they're kind of serving two masters there. Well, we can leave it there, but yeah, I appreciate kind of your perspective on that. So thank you for the call. And let me get back to, okay. All right. Sam. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was uh, really happy you brought up that whole amnesty report because it's funny to see how people were, you know, listen, of course, in war, war crimes are committed. That's a given. But it's always, well, the uh, Russians are doing it all and the Ukrainians are not, even though you would see videos floating online where it's like, this is clearly a school. You can see it's a school, but how dare you? It's Russian propaganda. And I couldn't help but think, and I'm sure you remember this, in 2014, uh, when there was even the Times had gone into, uh, quote, rebel held area of Aleppo, and they were showing how some hospitals had uh, been converted to like actual jail cells. Schools were not used as schools. They were used as like command centers. But when 2015 rolls around and the government starts taking it back, it that no one had referenced any of these reports. It was they're bombing schools and hospitals directly. And I'm like, yeah, some of those are actual targets from your own outlets that showed this. But, you know, that never becomes a thing anymore. And here it's I mean, look, if they wanted to make the case that these were not schools anymore because they use them as such, fine. But you have to acknowledge the facts as is. And, you know. Where so many people got sucked into this propaganda that they can't fathom that some things were actual tr- actually true. Uh, yeah, the uh, sorry, go ahead. the propaganda around Aleppo was insane. It was a it was actually an early preview of a lot of the propaganda we got around Ukraine, where Aleppo was turned into this uh, story where you know Syria with Russia's help was bombing the entire city and uh, you know taking it over from freedom fighters like that was and civilians were caught in the crossfire the reality of aleppo was actually first of all aleppo when the syrian um it was just east aleppo it's small pocket of aleppo not even yeah so but 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 just like starting at the very beginning of the syria dirty war there weren't even any major protests in aleppo uh Mm -hmm. which is pretty amazing like at least in damascus you had some protests against the syrian government when when the Syrian dirty war began in 2011 in Aleppo, there was basically nothing Aleppo. There were, there weren't even protests because they didn't want to have a civil war in their country. And they real, and people there realized what was coming. And they felt that when Aleppo was occupied by, you know, Turkey armed jihadists and U S armed, armed jihadists. Uh, and they took over the Eastern part of the city. The vast majority of the residents, everyone who could fled to the Western part of the city and these, the jihadists in the eastern part were shelling constantly the western part. And that's what the Syrian government, fi- with Russia's help, finally put an end to in 2016 is what it was, right? Mm-hmm. But, the, but, the, but what we got in the media was like the exact opposite, that like essentially the difference between eastern and western Aleppo didn't even exist. And the whole city was entirely under bombardment of Syria and Russia. Actually, no, the Syria and Russia were just actually targeting the occupied part of the city that was bombing the other part of the city where the majority of the people lived. And yes, one of the hospitals, at least one of the hospitals was used to torture people. Uh, Robert F. Worth of the New York times did some reporting on this. And, uh, but of course, you know, aside from him, I think he's the only Western reporter to actually acknowledge that, uh, you know, him and Robert Fisk, maybe a few others, but otherwise, as you say, 
the reality was completely obscured to protect, you know, fanatical jihadist occupiers. Yeah, and it didn't change. And I remember you reported on this. I mean, first, I also remember at the same time, I think, dating myself here, but in the real news, I think it was Rania was debating some guy who was trying to argue that there was there was a uh, uh, an understanding uh, between the I don't know how you get a government in that occupied Aleppo uh, and and the jihadist groups, which was all complete nonsense. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah, you remember that. Uh, but then it was uh, it was what one two years later, one year later, after people after like they had given the options and you know for people to leave Aleppo, which also even the UN had to report that they had un- overestimated the number of civilians because they you know we were hearing a million people are trapped and it was like what ninety thousand at the end. And uh, then it was, what, two years later, there was that article from the Times where the guy had went in and spoke with the residents of, of East Aleppo. And they were all saying, yeah, I don't know who told you these people were rebels, but they were not. They were hardline extremists. Like, we know what we we we're not sure what we want, but we know what we don't want. And these groups that you were praising were were insane. But, of course, then even that got backlash. So, you know, I'm just saying, like, you know, it's a prequel to what we're going to see in two years. You're going to have people who are saying, yeah, these guys were Nazis. And, of course, people will get upset and and scream, you know, even when you have people who are in those areas saying, yeah, these guys were not, you know, freedom fighters or diverse. They were insane. And this is exactly what she says, the same things. Uh, I'm just going to wrap it up real quick because I know there's a, a cue forming. But uh, to the point about following weapons around, I think she understated that because, as, you, as we remember, there was a DIA report that came out, a leaked memo that said you need to stop sending weapons into Syria. Exactly They're right. ending up in a hand in Islamic-style caliphates. And yeah. there were lots of writing on the wall. And I remember The Guardian wrote an article like, oh, it's not what you think it means. It's like, I don't know how else it means anything else. And, uh, you know, it's just also what I finally found amazing was, I, look, I have a, people, a lot of friends who are on the left, and they said, yeah, this is a, if you are against imperialism, you have to stand up for it. I said, sure, you know, fine. But why is it then uh, that they're siding with Israel in this case? And it's uh, it's like, right, because this has nothing to do with imperialism that we're standing up to. It's just it's a proxy war. And, of course, it, even if Zelensky wanted to in his core say, I, I'm saying with the Palestine, he's smart enough to know the second you say that the funding would, would turn off in a minute with, without question. So yeah. this is what's given. Uh, anyway, I hope uh, later on this week, if you guys talk about the Israeli conflict thing of what happened, uh, you uh, bring on Miko Pellet. I know I brought him up before, but I'd love to hear, see him again on the show. Okay. Thanks, Sam. Anyway, take care, bro. Yeah, and let me actually, I'm going to read this from Robert F. Worth because, yeah. you know, when I read this, you know, it, it just, it's funny because of the way Western culture is, a lot of people only have their minds changed when they read, you know, the truth in so-called, you know, um, authoritative sources like, like the New York mm-hmm. Times. And from, I'm one of them actually. For me, I really started to understand what was happening in Syria after I read this article by Robert F. Worth in their, in their Times. When I saw him saying it, I was like, oh, it must be true if yeah. the New York Times is saying it. And this is what he said. And compare this to all, all we heard about Aleppo in the years before that. This is him in mm-hmm. 2017. He says, Eastern Aleppo may not have been Raqqa, where ISIS advertised its rigid Islamist dystopia and its mass beheadings. But as a symbol of Syria's future, it was almost as bad. A chaotic wasteland full of feuding militias, some of them radical Islamists, who hoarded food and weapons while the people starved. And that's exactly what Aleppo was, but we got the opposite betrayal back when the town was being liberated. And, that, and what, what were some of the first images we saw after Aleppo was, was liberated? It was Christians 
for the first time celebrating uh, Christmas mm-hmm. uh, because they couldn't do that when they were occupied. They had to stay hidden. Yeah. And, uh, and, and again, where did the majority of this, of the people who were given the option going to, they, did they go to Idlib? No, the overwhelming majority came out and went to the regular, uh, to the rest of Aleppo and said, thank God we can get out because we were pretty much held hostage by these people. Yeah. But even with that, we still, we still pretend like it never happened. And, you know, it's not going to be till 15 years and somebody writes a book and then people go, well, I mean, you know, it was murky. No one knows what was going on, but anyway, I hope to see you. uh, Can't wait to see your show tomorrow, brother. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Let me also mention one thing I forgot to say at the beginning, which is uh, right now the U S ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas Greenfield is on a trip to Africa and it's supposed to, it was billed as a listening tour, but really it's a, it's a threatening mission. It's like a, it's like a, it's not a listening tour. It's a threat mission where she's going around Africa saying, if you don't uh, uh, bow down to our sanctions on Russia, if you trade with Russia, you're going to face consequences. She even said it outright. She said this, we caution countries not to break those sanctions. They stand the chance of having actions taken against them. So this is the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. going to Africa to threaten African countries that they're going to have actions taken against them if they dare trade with Russia. So import Russian fuel, which they need right now to power their countries, especially right now as tens of millions of people in Africa face hunger. And the U.S. is telling them, if you try to use Russia, uh, Russian goods to help your people, you will face the uh, actions being taken against you. It's just like a mafia racket. And it's just amazing that you know, this is said and no one stops to think, well, did anybody in Africa vote for Joe Biden or did anybody in Africa vote for the sanctions that Biden is imposing on Russia? No. So who is the U.S. to tell Africa, you know, whether or not they can trade with Russia, whether or not, uh, you know, whether or not they'll face consequences if they don't respect sanctions that they had no role in implementing? Uh, by a government that they, they that by a government that they didn't vote for. I mean, Africa, like Joe Biden isn't the president of Africa, but that's the that's the prevailing mentality inside Washington right now. Okay, Chris, you are up next. Hey, what's up, Aaron? Hi there. Hey, um, yeah, I I, uh, I read over the stories that you were talking about the um, the Amnesty report, the CBS report, and there was there was another one that kind of caught my eye um, more just from the standpoint of um, surprising criticism for for coming out of the Western media. And that was um, Thomas Friedman's uh, column. And he, he it was ostensibly about um, Pelosi going to Taiwan, but he kind of dropped this thing where he said that um, like the White House and it seemed like he was saying the, the foreign policy uh, machine in Washington in general was not happy with Zelensky and that they and and saying and that seemed really weird to me because I mean Friedman's kind of a buffoon and I don't know how reliable he is but it seems like he does kind of have he, he is clued into those people and he, he kind of does know what they what they believe and think and um it and it got me it got me wondering why you would do that, but I think that um, I think that they're worried about like a Benghazi situation happening, where there's some kind of dramatic military disaster 
that kind of breaks the the, the mainstream media narrative and al- allows it to become politicized. And then they'll have trouble. Then they'll really have trouble managing things. Um, and it's, it seems like that's kind of already starting because you, because you do have some Republicans who are critical. Um, but it, but, but it, but it's not, it's not like, like it was with Libya yet, obviously. And, and it's, and they've, they've really had a nice ride so far because they've avoided this situation with Iraq war, which where you had the left um, anti-war left um, make an alliance with the anti-war right, the kind of like Rand Paul or Ron Paul um, wing of the Republican party. And I don't know, I think I, it, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not reading it right, but it looks like they are kind of worried that they're on the ropes because, you know, there's, there's, there's the stuff you talked about with um, that Ukraine's done, but there's also these. Uh, apparently, they've just been launching anti-personnel pedal mines in residential districts, which are really nasty yeah. um, weapons. There's also these reports coming out that um, the the nuclear power plant um, in Zaporizhia has been getting shelled, um, and that is that seems like a real problem because all of these nuclear plants, um, if they're not maintained properly, then, you know, that can be a disaster right there. So I don't know. Do you, do you think that, do you think that they're getting nervous? Like, do they, cause, cause the pushback to the amnesty thing that, that the, you know, the, the regular suspects have been doing, I, I guess that's expected, but do you, do you think that their grip, is as firm as ever or is it slipping or I don't know. How do you see it? Uh, well, look, I don't, it's hard for me to speculate about what's going on behind the scenes, but I will say, look, you broke up a little bit when you're reading, when you're talking about what Thomas Friedman was reporting. So let me just read it for people who missed oh, yeah. it. Sorry about that. No, it's fine. Thomas Friedman wrote this column recently where he says this, um, Privately, U.S. officials are a lot more concerned about Ukraine's leadership than they are letting on. There is deep mistrust between the White House and President Zelensky of Ukraine, considerably more than has been reported. And Friedman goes on to talk about corruption concerns in Ukraine. So I read this as, you know, a couple of things. I think it's the U.S. maybe preparing to throw Zelensky under the bus if he's no longer useful. Uh, and if they decide he's expendable. It also could be a warning to him because, you know, he, you know, Friedman is very close to some U.S. officials. So perhaps there's something going on where the U.S. is sensing that, that Zelensky is falling out of line. Um, there were efforts by Zelensky in late March to have talks with Russia, which were called off by the U.S. and U.K. That's when Boris Johnson went to Zelensky and said, no, like no peace with Russia. And if you make Peace, we're not going to back it up with any kind of security guarantees. So perhaps, you know, it, it could even be the U.S. just firing a warning shot at Zelensky saying, don't even think about negotiations. So, but, it, you know, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. But certainly it does underscore to me that Zelensky is totally expendable to the U.S. And they'll do what they always do when clients are no longer useful. They'll sell them out. Uh, and I have no doubt that that's what will happen or I'm pretty confident that that's what happened to, uh, to Zelensky. Okay. And by the way, just an update here. CBS apparently is now claiming their documentary is being updated 
after they got so much criticism uh, for reporting on how weapons in Ukraine are not being tracked. So they've taken down the documentary, apparently. That is what is being said on Twitter. And uh, so the link is no longer valid, apparently, for what I'm seeing on Twitter. So that's, you know, it speaks to what we were talking about before with amnesties. You know, the flack you get is so strong. Uh, and Chomsky and Herman talk about this in Manufacturing Consent, the flack mechanism. That's a way of enforcing narrative obedience. If somebody does not toe the line, you just subject them to flack. You harass them. You call them Russian apologists. You, uh, you know, accuse them of denying war crimes. You do everything. And it works. It works. And it looks like I'm, I'm not surprised that it worked. Apparently it worked on CBS here. It's very rare that news outlets update stories so quickly uh, based on public outrage and certainly taking down the weapons, uh, taking down the story and removing it um, doesn't happen very often. And yeah, so I'm looking at that clip that I played everyone before about like that clip from the documentary that is, that has been, um, that's been deleted. So obviously CBS is <laughs> moving quickly to, uh, to reverse its own reporting, which is just so sadly unsurprising. Okay. Next caller. Hey, Aaron. Hi there. Um, I guess I wanted to um, ask you a little bit more of, of what the previous caller was saying, um, or maybe even a, a more general comment on that. Like, how do you feel about the future? Like, um, uh, you know, everything that's going on with Ukraine, um, uh, what's going on in Taiwan. Um, do you think uh, the future is brighter than what it what it currently is? Um, uh, you know, uh, along those lines, uh, um, there's so much turmoil that's going on, but I feel like uh, change is happening, and uh, I'm not quite sure if it's it's um, for the better. Like, uh, you know, um, with the brick and road initiative, um, do you think that's, that's something that, that's, uh, gonna be better, f uh, for the world, um, from what it used to be, you know, um, you know, the, the, um, the WTO, um, had been controlling the world, uh, before that, um, you know, the World Economic Forum is trying to, uh, usher in whatever plans they're trying uh, to usher in. Um, how do you feel about the, the, the future in general? Well, I uh, look, it's, it's hard for me to weigh in because the future really is up to us. You know, the future is up to what kind of action we all take now. And that's what will determine the future. And I don't know what action we're going to take. Um, and that, but I'm, that's what I'm concerned about is thinking about what, what we can do now to, avoid a disastrous future. Certainly, there's plenty of things to feel bleak about. There's the heightened risk of nuclear confrontation as a result of Ukraine and also Syria as well, where both the U.S. and Russia have military forces. That's another dangerous spot. Um, you know, I'm worried about climate change, obviously, like like most people. So there's plenty of things to feel bleak about. I, I also think, look, look, look um, Society has advanced in many ways, too. And there are things now 
crimes now that are harder to get away with. So, for example, now in U.S. public life, there's more criticism of Israel allowed when it massacres Palestinians. And uh, it may seem hopeless in that respect because it's been going on for so long, but the, the level of criticism now is a lot larger than it used to be. So, you know, I'm just concerned with expanding the space for dissent in the present, and that will you know, lead us to the best or at least the least worst future possible. Or, you know, the, all we can do is, is control our own actions and and that will help contribute to making for a more optimistic future. But in term, there's plenty of things to feel bleak about. I'm not going to lie about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, sure. You know, there, there are things going on every day uh, that are horrendous and atrocious. Uh, um, but given... All of that, um, you know, the big moves uh, that are that are being taken by the big players, um, uh, you know, the, the 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 three main superpowers are out there competing with each other. Um, it feels like the old guard um, has lost its grip, and um, uh, maybe there's a new guard coming. But I'm I'm not certain that. Uh, you know, the new guard will be any better than the old, you know, it's like, um, uh, the king is dead, long live the king, you know, um, but at the same time, uh, I feel like history, uh, you know, what all of these other, uh, you know, the second tier superpowers, I guess, um, I, I don't mean to, to, um, to diminish them, you know, uh, China and Russia, um, uh, but how the world, uh, you know, has typically been framed uh, historically, that's how they, they, they've been referred to. But um, uh, I'm not quite sure that the future that they'll, they'll bring will be any better than, uh, you, know, you know, what we currently are living through. But at the same time, you know, they have their histories and that, um, you know, those histories aren't... Um, uh, well, I mean, their histories, you know, we okay. all know what their histories yeah, yeah, are. Yeah, I'm looking at here because we actually have a, we have a longer queue than I realized. So we're going to move on. But thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Laura. Good afternoon or good evening. Good evening. Aaron, thank you for your time. Um, I've spoken before. After watching your newest episode of Useful In... Um, idiots, your episode with Lindsay Snell was really groundbreaking as far as punching through the narr- that that uniform controlled narrative that we are under. Um, I've been watching for several years how the control is getting tighter and tighter around independent voices and dissenting voices and it's now really forming especially after the imprisonment of Julian Assange like the UK um, made a new law that will imprison reporters from anywhere from 3 to 14 years who write anything that embarrasses the government and then there's a very recent incident with a German reporter by the name of, I hope I get her first name right, Alina Lip, spelt with two P's. Um, 
because she went to the front lines and she reported about the Stefan Bandera groups and the Azov Battalion and just truthfully showed what was going on while she was in the front lines reporting she had found out that she will be arrested as soon as she returns to Germany and what they did was they shut her entire um, YouTube channel down they froze not just her assets um, through any means and all means but her family's as well and she has been arrested and convicted without a trial for three years Yes, that's right. And in fact, and the um, next, um, the next yeah. one is um, a, that blacklist that came out that had Eva K. Bartlett on it, uh-huh. um, Patrick Lancaster, uh, a U.S. couple of U.S. politicians. I believe one was Rand Paul, and it, there is no pushback from the so-called left. You know, Sanders and the Squad, and that's very telling as to what we're living through, because it reminds me of the experiences we lived through in the 50s during the McCarthy era, only on steroids. And Vanessa Bealey is also very well known in my circles, embedded um, reporter. She's out of, she's, English, but she lives in Lebanon and yeah. reports has been really great on reporting on Syria. Et yes, yes. I'm going to come in here because um, yes, because I want to recommend an interview that Max Blumenthal did with the German reporter that you mentioned that's up at the gray zone. He recently spoke to her. Yeah, she's basically banned from going back to her own country. She can't go back anymore to Germany because she faces prosecution. So now she's in Ukraine, and her crime is essentially reporting the wrong side of the story, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And that's why you're important. Um, And, you know, without, obviously our government is, I'm going to explain how I see my country now. My country is our, okay, the U.S. is nothing more than a multinational corporation that masquerades as a nation. There is no such thing as democracy here. And I'm not kidding. The local Elections are, the, I think, the bedrock of where everyone should start because there is where you can control your communities and from there you can direct how things work. That's right. And be an example to others how to follow. That's right. Maybe Laura, thank you. I've Laura, a, yes, thank sir? you for the call. Thank you for the call. I have to move on because we have a long queue and limited time. So thank you very much. For the yes, call. sir. You have Appreciate a good it. evening. Thank you. You too. Okay, Matthew. Hey, Aaron. Hi there. Um. So I have I have a weird echo actually. Okay, there now it's gone. Um. So I guess I just have a question regarding the um your views on the Syria war crimes issue. So the is your claim just about the Duma uh, uh, attacks, skepticism about this, uh, that the Syrian government did, or do you, are you more globally skeptical or denying, like, the? because there are various allegations of war crimes, like raised city districts in Damascus, attacks on medical personnel, like, 
use of, of, of barrel bombs and so on. Are, are you generally skeptical of what human rights groups are reporting and so on, or is it just confined to the doom, the case of Duma? No, look, I've, I've no doubt that the Syrian government committed atrocities. I mean, that's okay. the question. There's recently some video came out of a town called Tamadon. I think I have the name right, where there was a, there was a massacre that took place by Syrian government forces against, um, uh, including a group of people that included included civilians, uh, and apparently it was done. There was there had been some fighting there, and there had been a massacre of government supporters or something. Uh, so of course atrocities took place, and of course they were carried out by the Syrian government. But um, the the what is missing in the conversation about Syria is that essentially Syria was defending itself from a war it didn't start. Uh, it didn't. Elect, Syrians did not elect the governments of the U.S., Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, Israel, and and uh, in Europe. Uh, but yet those governments decided that they could pour billions of dollars into Syria and fund a dirty war. Well, nor did they elect the Assad regime, though. I mean, clearly, like like the guy's dad was dictator before him. They that's both true. have a that, that's, record. That is process. true, but 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 that's at least their government. Right. Is. That's at least that, that's at least their that's their government, and I, it's not popular to say, but it's true that that government does have popular support inside Syria. It does, sure, uh, among the Alawi, it has support. Maybe among the, definitely has support among Alawi. Uh, it's it, it has support among some Christians, reluctant support, but there are a lot of people who uh, oppose it vi- vigorously, and, and I think they are quite sure. right to. Uh, sure, and they have every right to oppose. Yeah, there is some popular support, for, of course. Yeah. Right. Uh, of course, they have every right to. The question is, do outside countries have the right to flood Syria with billions of dollars worth of weapons to f- to arm a, that's and that's a reasonable to to to, to uh, arm an insurgency, arm an insurgency dominated by Al Qaeda? And the answer is no. And does Syria have the right to defend itself from that? I say absolutely. And so, if you care about war crimes in Syria, I think our top priority should have been. To stop feeling is it is it right to characterize the the armed opposition as al Qaeda like like in general? I mean that doesn't seem to be. I haven't done like independent research on this. I do speak Arabic, but um, my mother is actually of Arab descent. But the um, but I, so I haven't done independent research on this. But uh, just based on what I've read and 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 talking to to some people from the region, I'd be very surprised if the the bulk of the opposition is is like sympathetic to terrorism or Sunni radicalism. I'm sure these elements exist, but the bulk of the fighters inside uh, the Syrian insurgency, I mean, just think about it logically. Like, even if you knew nothing about what actually happened, think about it logically. Do you really think, do you really think that they were, um, you know, uh, moderate rebels, like people like who believe in liberal values and, and freedom just think about that. Like, how many insurgencies are dominated by like moderate liberals and democracy leverage? It it just doesn't happen. The insurgency in Syria was dominated by Al Qaeda. The U.S. knew that from the start. Well, and, again, and for it's sources, obvious and, there are and for sources and, and for sources yeah, for sources on that. I wrote an article about this recently called "Al Qaeda is on Our Side," uh, and I go through just the massive evidence that the U.S. knew from the start that the insurgency it was supporting was dominated by Al Qaeda. There's so many damning quotes from everybody, Joe Biden, uh, John Kerry, uh, Lindsey Graham, everybody, they all knew it. They didn't, they just didn't care. 
Um, just as they didn't care that the insurgency in Libya was also dominated by well, obviously, look, Assad is Assad is is from a an, an, a kind of heterodox sect of Islam um, that you know the Alawi. I, I don't know much about their theology, but they're highly heterodox. So if you're a Sunni uh, fanatic, uh, I'm not, obviously I'm not talking about Muslims or Sunni Muslims in general. But if you are an extremist like Al Qaeda, like yeah, you might you might. Um, you'd be attracted to an anti-Assad movement, but I don't think that's representative of, of, of the movement, its leadership at all. In terms of the fighters, I just have no idea what the demographics are among their ideology, but these elements are certainly present. Yeah. Well, I recommend, I, I recommend that you read my article. If you're interested in, in hearing what I have to say about it. I mean, look, one, one of the earliest chants in the Syrian uprising was Christians to Beirut, Alawites to the grave. Uh, I'm not saying that all the opposition were were jihadists, but the fighters were dominated by, by jihadists. And essentially, w- what happened in Syria is you have early on two strands of opposition protests. You have uh, Sunni-driven protests that are um, where you know which there were areas where this did catch on, where people wanted to impose essentially harsh Islamic law. They they wanted to. Um, have women wear burqas, that that was an issue where in schools there was, you know, like the Syrian government was promoting secularism. The people wanted to reverse that. And that was, that was in terms of popular support, that was the major component. Then you had some smaller protests like in Damascus and elsewhere from liberal-minded people who just wanted, you know, they, want, they were opposing corruption and they wanted, they wanted more freedom. They wanted to end one-party rule. I get all that. But that was a much smaller strain of the Syrian revolution, if that's what you want to call it, the major, the, the dominant strain was uh, sectarian. And that's what the U.S. was supporting. And they created the myth of this moderate rebel. And Joe Biden even said that, you know, that there, there was, he's, Joe Biden said there was no moderate middle in Syria. And he said the vast majority of weapons went to al-Qaeda and ISIS. And that was also recognized internally by the U.S. in intelligence documents, by the Defense Intelligence Agency, it was reported quietly in the media throughout that, and I go through that in my article. And I just think well, that- I, I I don't know. I just don't know. I haven't done any research about the the beliefs of the milit of people actually taking up arms. I, I do know that, uh, like the Syrian National Coalition, the leadership of that is not <laughs> comprised of Sunni radicals. Yes, but who are they? Those are those are people like they're essentially all people living in exile, who have no connection to anyone on the ground. Those are all people who. Um, are bitter at the Assad government because they want to rule the country. They, they want to rip off the country instead of having Assad rip off the country. Uh, that's like they're basically like the equivalent of Ahmed Chalabi in Iraq, uh, and they were in exile and they had no power at all on the ground. One other point I make that I think that I'd make is I think is important is so there, there'd be two types of sectarianism. I, and again, I do not deny it's obviously true that if you are a Sunni fundamentalist who wants to impose some harsh form of Islamic law, you would hate Assad for that reason. You don't need, there's no other reason you need. That's enough because he's not, that's not uh, the form of government he's going to embrace at all. But you could, you could, there could be legitimate sectarianism insofar as the Sunnis are, the Alawis, uh, you know, receive all kinds of positive, you know, not positive isn't good, but positive isn't unfair discrimination in their favor in the ruling class of the country. And Sunnis are, are rather marginalized. Of course, yes, yes, that's true. But also, look, Syria was a plural. Yes, that's true. Uh, there, there were um, 
Alawis who are privileged inside the Syrian government. Yes, but the you know, look, this is a society with uh, multiple different uh, religions and, and identities, and the Syrian government was seen as a protector of pluralism. Everybody recognizes that. And the people who the U.S. was supporting wanted to end all that. They wanted to subject... Well, it depends on the sect, though. Like, I think, I think there'd be more Christians who would argue that, what you're arguing. That, I don't think they'd phrase it so in such a, a, a kind of effusive way, but I think that there would be a lot of Christians who'd say, this regime protects our rights and doesn't persecute us, so we like... It's, not that they even like it, but they don't want it to be overthrown. But look, but look, right? but there's something, but look, look, look. But I don't think Sunnis would call this... But but look, listen, this is where even this conversation is actually flawed because actually the majority of the Syrian military is Sunni. So even the idea that all Sunnis were opposed to the government is not even true. The vast well, but, majority but the, the, you have to, the, the you vast have majority to the vast mail. majority of the Syrian army are people Okay, yeah, the, who, the soldiers conscripted the I mean that's just gonna yeah, reflect but, but graphics. Sure, but if you, if they were really uh if there really was the sectarian split the way we've been speaking so far, then presumably these Sunni soldiers would be uh, rising up against their own government. No, they didn't because actually well, but most, most people don't, don't rise up against the government. And well, the, yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's my whole point. Exactly. Cause most people don't want to destroy their country. Uh, for well, the there are many reasons other... you don't rise up against the government. I mean, what um... I'm saying is even, even in the military, if anyone is best positioned to rise up against the government, it's someone in the military because you have weapons and you can easily, defect and go over to the rebel side. What I'm saying is a majority Sunni army didn't even do that. So even the idea that there's a sectarian split inside Syria is not fully accurate because even those who were on the Sunni side did not even defect. That's my point. And we're going to end it there because I could debate Syria all day. But I, I Matthew, I appreciate the call and help you call. Yeah, thank you, for, thank you for engaging, Aaron. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Jenny Marie. All right. What are your thoughts on Zelensky flagging that he was interested in having China broker a peace and even come in afterwards after the war to rebuild Ukraine? Well, there you go. You know, so I was saying before that uh, about Thomas Friedman reporting that people inside the White House are not pleased with Zelensky and there's a big rift between them. It could be something like that. Maybe Zelensky calling for negotiations brokered by China. And having China involved in, you know, post-war rebuilding, that's angered people inside the White House because, of course, they want to isolate and weaken China. And China had pretty good relations with Ukraine before Russia's invasion. So that could be why the White House is reportedly, if Thomas Friedman is correct, annoyed with him, you know. So I think that's a great question. I don't know the answer, but that's, that's certainly a possibility. Do you think it had anything to do with Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan? Uh, her going to Taiwan to, I mean, I think, um, the connection to Ukraine there is that that's the U S just completely recklessly provoking another foreign power on an issue that's really important to them. You know, Ukraine is a red line for Russia. It said that that's been known since 2008 when William Burns, who was then the U S ambassador to Russia now is the head of the CIA, warned that for Russia, Ukraine is a red line. And that if we try to bring Ukraine into NATO, that's going to provoke a war. Well, the Chinese, the Chinese seem pretty peeved. They, and so China is pretty peeved about uh, Pelosi going to Taiwan. And because for them also, Taiwan is a red line. They see Taiwan as a part of 
their country, and the, there was a U, established U.S. policy of having, you know, of seeing Taiwan not as being independent, um, and seeing essentially Taiwan and China as one country but two systems. And this is seen as a effort by the U.S. to roll that back. So yeah, China is upset. So I think the tie there is, I think, simply the U.S. is after provoking one incident and start is, is provoking another. And I think it's very reckless. Yeah. Perfect storm. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Okay. Jim is next. Okay. And Jim, if you're there, there's a microphone button that you hit to unmute yourself. Okay. And if not, we'll move on to Shane. Hello, Shane. Are you there? There you go. Hey, uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good. How are you? Super good. Um, yeah, I uh, just first off want to say like your and Max Blumenthal's journalism is like really brought me through a rabbit hole uh, as like context for what I'm going to say when like things started flaring up between Russia and Ukraine. I was really into like Slavoj Zizek and Francis Fukuyama at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So like, I just get really confused when I see like so-called like normal thinkers, like Michael McFowl making all these, like, like there's this really constant stream of like comments about how like Russia is being like this super irrational player. And, you know, like referencing or like what I mean by Francis, you know, my thought is, was influenced by Francis Fukuyama at the time. Like, I just thought there was like this realistic geopolitical thing going on with them. And I just don't get how they can frame this whole thing against Russia and China without really bringing in to the conversation, like, we're talking about their borders, right? Like, if we're supporting Taiwan and Ukraine, we're really agitating at their borders. And, you know, you think about what Russia went through in the 90s, and then you think about NATO taking in Ukraine. It's just like, how could they not, you know, be cognizant of that? I I, I just, I, I guess my comment is, like, I really appreciate your journalism and Max Blumenthal and like lots of other people. And I just wish that that was brought in even more. Like who cares about Putin or like, you know, he might be like a giant asshole, but like if, if, if Russia was giving even just a little bit of aid to Mexico, right. Let's just say we lost the cold war and they yeah. did anything with Mex- Mexico, like even something that wasn't necessarily inherently militant, you yeah. would just like, it just wouldn't even be, you know? So I just wish like, uh, I guess, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Well, look, uh, our, our propaganda system conditions us to subconsciously accept that we, to just, um, to just believe and presume that we are better than everybody else. We have more rights than everybody else. And then if anybody tries to hold us to the same standards that we claim to hold other others to, then, you know, then they're, then they're wrong and they have no right to do that. We're just inherently better. It's a really supremacist attitude. And so, yes, as you say, 
if uh, Russia was doing in Mexico or Canada what the U.S. has done in Ukraine for the last decade, you know, the U.S. would have invaded a long time ago. They wouldn't have taken this long, as long as it took Russia. Uh, you know, Adam Schiff said two years ago that the U.S. aids Ukraine so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight them here, right? So he was openly admitting that the U.S. was using Ukraine to fight Russia over there. And so Russia is now ending the fight in a really brutal, awful way. But it's like, this was, you know... Um, and and the, I guess that's my, my um, what I wanted to engage you on is, uh, like, it's not that I have any... I guess at this point, I kind of do have some, like, warm feelings towards Putin. But, like, you don't have to have warm feelings towards Putin to see, like, w- like it is awful. Like, I'm not saying that it's not awful mm-hmm. what's going on in Ukraine. But it is understandable, I guess is my point. Like, yeah, sure. If there it's was illegal. Any yeah. thought that, yeah. If there was any thought that there was, like, some kind of border intrusion happening down in San Diego... Like mm-hmm. I can think of people that I know in who live in San Diego, who would go and do war crimes, like literally. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So yeah. I just wish that yeah. that was like part of the conversation. That it's like, well, this is like a super gnarly existential threat, and like if you're just thinking about the people that live there, mm-hmm. like in Donbass or something, like yeah, yeah. Well, they, is- they don't exist. I, I, that's the point. I mean, you know, the idea that Russia woke up one day and decided to invade Ukraine all of a sudden that you know like is is dominant that's an attitude like that's why every time if you talk about ukraine now in corporate media you have to say russia's unprovoked war on ukraine yeah right no one ever said bush's unprovoked war on iraq right even though that was genuinely unprovoked but the reason they have to go and say it's unprovoked is because it was provoked and they know it so they, they have to go out of their way and say that that it was uh uh, and lie and say that it was unprovoked. And look, I wish Russia had found a different way. And I can't accept that Russia's only option was to invade Ukraine and kill so many people and sacrifice so many of its own people. You know, I just can't accept that because I'm not pro-war. I have to believe Russia could have tried. Yeah, other- and I'm, I'm, but I'm, I, really, but not, I'm really anti-war too. Yeah. Like, I'm very, very much anti-war. Yeah. I just, like, there is a part of me that thinks about, like, I guess like just life in America right now where there's all of these different like levels of decline that are happening. Like I, I live in Newport beach, California, right? Like life is very nice here, but I just see all these different like levels of decline that creep in. And I can't imagine like Russia who lived through the nineties in like the fall of the Soviet union, everything that came with it. Like I just, I guess I really empathize with somebody who's all like, are you kidding me? Like, absolutely not. Like being like, yeah, no, yeah, and, and that's Putin, not going to yeah, happen. Yeah. And Putin exists. I mean, like the reason Putin was possible was because of Russia's humiliation in the nineties when the U S yeah. won the cold war. And instead of treating Russia as a partner, as a defeated partner, but still a partner, you know, saw it as a, uh, defeated, uh, enemy and that they were going to take advantage of. And, and they humiliated, Yeltsin, they made him impose all this radical shock therapy that created the oligarch class and that handed over Russian industry to this group of thieves. Uh, and all of this helped lead to the decimation of Russian society where life expectancy plunged and things were horrible. And Putin was a reaction to that. He offered a 
you know, a, a very uh, staunch version of nationalism. And Putin has done the job of trying to restore some Russian dignity. And the U.S. has resented him for that. They don't want people who will actually defend the interests of their own country. And, you know, in the process, look, I'm not a Putin fan. If I was in Russia, I, you know, I think it would be tough for me because, you know, if you're, they do, you know, the, the space for dissent there is curtailed. I mean, there are crackdowns on dissenters. And I know Russian leftists who had a really tough time. We've had to live in exile. But I understand yeah. where Putin comes from. I understand why he exists. And you just can't, you can't, either you can choose to ignore all that context and just pretend he's just some diabolical dictator or not. And I, you know, I choose not to ignore it, but that makes it, it's difficult because the, the context is so often omitted in, in how we talk about Russia. And, you know, I'm yeah, still it's just so it. it's like really absolute, like as if, yeah. as if like Putin is this like all encompassing last thing I just want to like slide in there is just like, as far as like Taiwan goes, cause obviously that and Ukraine are like very similar. Um, I've just been like listening to these researchers. I'm not sure if you know about Contbot in Edberg. They have like a, they've been putting out a bunch of research about like development stuff for a while. And, you know, they kind of started putting out this research like a year ago. So quite a, quite a bit before like the Ukraine thing happened. And um, they, you know, they were just talking about all of these different banking networks that were supporting things in like, um, you know, with Lenin before the Russian revolution, but also with like the, like the, what is it? The, the Chinese nationalist, what is it? Um, Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan. And yeah, like I'll, I'll mute myself after this, but like, just, I feel like that's also like really devoid or like not in the conversation at all. Like what's going on with Taiwan isn't, just like within the past, like even like 20 or 30 years, like it's this very long standing thing. So I can really see why China is like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, absolutely not. Like you guys cannot have like this military outpost, yeah. like a hundred miles off of our, and, and you hear all these liberals and they're just, they, they're so smug about it. Like, Oh, well we need to bring human rights. And Oh my God, I can't believe that like specifically Michael McFowl, you know, he's all like, Oh, wah, wah, wah. like I yeah. can't believe that they would be like, threatened by us doing anything with Taiwan and it's like are you kidding me like yep. that is just historically bullshit Shane thanks a lot for the call I appreciate it okay Jeff you're up hi can you hear me yeah yes hi thanks um yes um you previously spoke about um Alexei Navalny and uh the fact that he was an amnesty prisoner of conscience and then they revoked it, and then they, you know, t- turned turtle again. Um, I should say that Amnesty International has is uh, supports um, the freedom of Julian Assange, but they refuse to call him a prisoner of conscience. Uh, and I, I, I used to think that might be because he wasn't technically in prison. He was in the Ecuadorian embassy, trapped in the Ecuadorian embassy, but he has been in prison for the last three years. And, and they don't call him a prisoner of conscience, which I find interesting because when they made the decision to uh, revoke uh, Navalny's status as a prisoner of conscience and then they gave it back to him, they said um, they condemned his views, but they said that 
um, he's a prisoner of conscience because what's being done to him. So if the views of a person don't have anything to do with um, them being granted the status prisoner of conscience, then I don't understand why they wouldn't give it to Assange because he's not far-right anti-immigrant populist like, you know, nationalist like Navalny. He's a sort of, you know, left libertarian publicist, isn't he? Yeah, that's a good point. And that speaks to the fact that Amnesty is really prone to pressure from political forces. It's it's not just wedded to a human rights agenda, it's wedded to political forces. And yeah, it's ridiculous that they won't call Assange a prisoner of conscience, but they will call Navalny one. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was um, surprised, just uh, shifting topics a bit, to see uh, a number of days ago um, a report at the top of uh, BBC News over here uh, about the abuse of disabled people in um, in the Ukrainian uh, system for disabled people. They said there was a lot of abuse of uh, inmates in the facilities there and that it long preceded the war. Um, I don't know if that's if you've heard about that in the States, but... Um, I, I have the I was kind of surprised to see that, right? You know, it was top billing on BBC News at 10 o'clock in the evening. Mm. Um, and that was, a, I think it was probably about two weeks ago now. Um, I'm going to propose something that sounds kind of outrageous, but I'd just be interested in your answer to it. And that is, however, unaccept- however unacceptable the uh, Russian invasion, however illegal, I wonder... Should- should we be supportive? Would it be a good thing or a bad thing for Russia's objectives in Ukraine to actually be realized at this stage? Because I know that they have uh, shifted their strategy somewhat. They used to, you know, that they were previously attacking much of the west of the country. Now they've sort of focused on the east. And in, in, to the extent that the war is purely aimed at degrading the Ukrainian government's capability to wage war on the Donbass, uh, should we hope that Russia is successful in that goal and do, do we trust it to adhere, you know, to, 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 uh, to adhere to that? And um, because I'm thinking, I know that the, the invasion itself was morally wrong, but maybe if Russia succeeded in degrading the Ukrainian military, um, hopefully when this war comes to an end, you know, hopefully that might allow the long-simmering Donbass conflict to come to an end as well. Well, look, I think the best way to end the Donbass conflict is to recognize that there are lots of people inside that region that don't want to live under a government that has attacked their culture since 2014, mm-hmm. um, when mm-hmm. effectively the Russian language was discriminated against and when you know the coup government was supporting fascists who were attacking russian speakers like in odessa where dozens were burned alive and the Minsk accords which called for giving limited autonomy to areas of the donbass but keeping them inside ukraine's borders that stands to me as if it's still realistic that stands to me as the best outcome i don't know if that's possible anymore because i don't know if russia will ever give those territories up I, uh, I've seen indications both ways. So I'm not going to root for anybody to continue fighting. Uh, cause I just, you know, I, I, th- I want the fighting to stop. 
the best way is for everyone just to negotiate and to come up with a, a compromise under the circumstances. Yeah, that's fair enough. I was just going to say, lastly, about the um, endangerment of civilians. Um, I should say that Amnesty has extensively investigated this allegation in Gaza, and they came to the conclusion that despite a lot of Israeli propaganda, Hamas did not use civilians as human shields. That's right. But I should say that in, um, in response to that, I think Israel and supporters of Israel have stretched the term human shields into something very elastic, and it almost means firing a projectile anywhere close to a, an urban area. And, of course, the Gaza Strip is basically one big urban area. But um, I think... Um, you know, and, and I, I don't know, Amnesty may have found Hamas guilty of civilian endangerment, uh, but not human shielding. And I know it's a very sensitive topic because I know Norman Finkelstein, the academic, was very angry at one particular Amnesty International report, which it was about the, uh, the 2014 military assault um, defensive shield. And um, he thought that Amnesty used language... Uh, that wasn't really suitable for such a one-sided military assault, holding both sides sort of uh, responsible for war crimes. And um, I think the Amnesty report did actually say that Hamas were responsible for a certain level of civilian endangerment, but um, not human shielding. But I, I remember Finkelstein saying, he said, it's as if, you know, a, a military power far superior to the U.S., were to launch an attack on New York, and the only way for New Yorkers to, to legitimately defend themselves would be to line up like a row of ducks in Central Park and Prospect Park. <laughs> you know, but people just don't behave like that, do they? You know, so um, I can understand why maybe um, the pro-rebel side in Ukraine is angry about this report, but I think it's probably accurate. It uh, agrees with a previous report by the UN. High Commissioner for Human Rights in June. Uh, that did mention civilian endangerment by Ukrainian forces. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. I don't know. I, I'm sort of, uh, you, you know, mixing the Gaza situation with the Ukraine. One well, day, look, but. the thing to say about Gaza is, look, it's a, um, let's say that Hamas was using civilians as human shields. In Gaza, it's really hard to avoid because you're in such a small strip of territory. Yeah. You have like something like 2 million people in a very small strip of land. And so everywhere you fire from, there's probably going to be civilians around. So it's yeah. difficult. Ukraine's a lot different. Ukraine deliberately put its forces in urban areas that it really didn't need to, that Russia was not going to invade. Um, and it put them there. And so Russia went after them there, and that led to civilian deaths. And, you know, Ukraine has the right to do whatever, defend itself however it wants to, but, it, you know, it doesn't have the right to complain when at least it gets documented that they're putting themselves near civilians and putting civilians in harm's way as a result of it. That's just a fact. And maybe, you know, Ukraine had no other choice. I don't know. But um, there's no doubt that that's what they're doing. And that's been obvious from the start. It's been reported from the start. I guess the difference is that a group as prominent as Amnesty hasn't said it so clearly yet, and that's why the outrage is is happening and uh, it speaks to again look if we had allowed more honest reporting on the war in ukraine from the start 
and not confine it to the margins, then there wouldn't be controversies like this where amnesty is attacked for speaking the truth. But when you operate in such a efficient propaganda system where the truth has a hard time to get out, when someone comes along and offers a you know stark challenge to it, it looks like an outlier, and then it looks like it, mu- it must be propaganda, Russian propaganda. So it has to be uh, shut down according to them. That's what's happened to Amnesty. And they'll be curious to see if they hold their ground. And uh, they've already apologized for the for the distress that they've caused, apparently, by their facts. But hopefully they won't withdraw the, the actual facts that they documented. All right. Uh, thank you for the call, Jeff. We're going to have to leave it there. I'll be back on here tomorrow morning with Katie Helper at 11 a.m. Eastern Time after we do Monday morning on YouTube at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Hope to see you there if you can make it. And have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody. Bye.